0: All right, everyone, today we begin a new sermon series titled Pursuing Greatness. Um, Greatness is simultaneously desirable and elusive. Um, We start life wanting to be a a great athlete or a great dancer or a great fireman. And then uh, for a whole host of reasons, uh, as life goes on, it, it eludes us. The Bible has much to say about greatness. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at pursuing greatness in areas such as um, greatness in light of eternity and greatness in light of the kingdom and greatness in light of brokenness and greatness in light of Christ's call upon us. Today, we begin with um, the sermon titled Greatness in Light of God's Glory. And our passage today is Psalm 8. And just a quick reminder, the Psalms are. The prayer, excuse me, the, the, the hymnal of God's people, um, the nation of Israel would gather and they would go to worship. And these were the songs that they would sing, though the songs were written by people like David and, and Asaph. Uh, the people would unite their hearts to the words and they would sing them collectively as God's people. Now. If you look at our text in, in the bulletin in your Bibles, you see that there's this italicized notation that begins the psalm, and uh, it's something to the choir master, and we see that this is a psalm of David, King David, and then it says it's according to the Gittith, right? So, um, what is a Gittith? Well, the answer is uh, no one really knows. Uh, uh, it, perhaps it could be an instrument that they played it on from Gath, or it could be a, a melody. Called the gitith that you're supposed to sing it to, you know, sing it to the happy birthday song, you know, you know how that goes, kind of that thing. But we really don't know exactly what a, a gitith is. But let's not get hung up on that. Instead, let's focus upon the focus of this psalm, and the focus of the psalm is upon the majesty of God who created all things, and the dignity that He has given us as His creatures, made in His image. See, it's from this great psalm that we're able to learn to pursue greatness in light of God's glory. So, Psalm 8. To the choirmaster, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the Avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, all the the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, If we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible song. Um, We pray that you would show us your glory in this, that we would more um, fully see you, understand you, uh, delight in you, be in awe of you, that we would ponder, like David, the very fact that you care for us and that we would see what greatness is. Um, in your realm and in your kingdom and on your earth, we pray your spiritual guidance as we devote this time. We pray, Amen. You know, I think pretty much everybody in America has heard of uh, Joel and Victoria Osteen. They they lead the largest church in America. It's down in Houston, Texas, Lakewood Church. Over forty three thousand people attend there. Every Sunday, they had to buy the old Rockets Arena in order to pack everybody in. I'm afraid to say that, unfortunately, all these people who come every week don't often hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They hear something else. It's been termed the prosperity gospel. It's a message that says, just go do good. Work hard. Be like so-and-so who did the right things. And God, God blessed her. Be like that person. Go and do things and then God will owe you the things in life that you want. The car, the career, the family. Now, those of you who come here to worship regularly, you're like... Mark normally doesn't pick on people, right? It's not normally something I do is to call out some other person, some other Christian minister, and and point and and, and, and ridicule. Hopefully, I, you see I'm not really doing that this morning. But Paul Paul does warn us that there's a. There will be a time when people will just quickly listen to things they want to hear, right? And um, and that we're to be careful at the messages that we listen to. And as your pastor, I want you to be careful what you listen to. We need to be wary. Is what I'm hearing really the message of the gospel, or is it some other gospel, as Paul says? And the other reason why I'm mentioning is because something was said in the pulpit a couple weeks back that really by reading it, it will help us uh, lead into our sermon here this morning. So, There was a time in the service where they were both standing up to Joel and Victoria and Victoria said some words that I really want you to listen to. And I want you to listen and see, how is this not the gospel? Here's what she said. I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we are happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. She continued, so I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen. And the whole congregation, 43,000 said, amen. Just do good for your own self, focus upon yourself, make yourself happy, and then God will be happy. The implied belief here is that God will only be happy if you're happy. His happiness is contingent upon how you feel. His greatness is contingent upon your greatness. But my friends, that's exactly the opposite of what this passage tells us. It teaches us that God is glorious and great and majestic and happy In and of himself. God's happiness isn't contingent upon weak, fickle, self-absorbed people. God doesn't need you in order to make him happy. God lacks nothing. But we need him in order to find our greatness in him. This psalm shows us this truth. Greatness for humanity is found in relation to divinity. True greatness for you and me is found in a relationship with God, who is glorious and great and majestic. David tells us that our ultimate greatness is found in God alone, and therefore our greatness must be derived from Him. See, greatness is a byproduct. It's a byproduct of our joy and delight and investment in, in God himself. It comes to us kind of like happiness. If you pursue happiness, you're not going to find it. But if you pursue God and his will for your life, you will experience happiness, right? The same thing is true with greatness. Greatness is a byproduct. Great, all greatness that human beings experience is a derived greatness. God is the one who's glorious. He is the fountainhead of glory. And if you experience any glory in this world or in this universe, it has come from him. So, too, with greatness. That's what we're going to look at here this morning. We're going to look at uh, two things. The God God of greatness and then the gift of greatness, the God of greatness and the gift of greatness. Do you wonder at God? I mean, do you marvel at who He is? His character, His greatness, His infinitude, His His creative mind, His His power, His His goodness and His glory. Do you marvel at that? You see, the degree to which your life is bound up in the greatness of God is the degree to which greatness is experienced in your life. <coughs> Consider the life of David, who wrote this psalm. He was perhaps one of the greatest kings who had ever lived. He started off as a poor, obscure shepherd boy, and he became king of a prosperous nation, um, and he led the people of God. Now, when you look at his life, what, what made him, him great? Was his, his tremendous courage? Was it his battle smarts? What was it that made David great? Well, David's greatness was the result of his relationship with God. David's life was committed to honoring and glorifying God. And so David saw that all of the greatness in his life was the result of his relationship with the God who was great. Does that make sense? And so here in our passage, we see David, the greatest king of all, acknowledging that actually there is a greater king than him. And he bows his knees to him. David shows us that because God is, is the ultimate greatness, we are to worship him, right? Why are we to worship him? A couple things. Well, one, because God is worthy. And the other is um, our, worship produce, our worship of God produces God's greatness in us. We're going to look at those two things. First, God is worthy. You know, if you never, ever receive anything from your worship of God, nothing, he is still worthy of your worship it's proper for the creature to worship the creator, correct? God is worthy of our worship. But David says there's many reasons why we should worship. In verse 1, he says, "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens." Here David is rejoicing in the greater king, the almighty Lord, and, and that's what we see. He says, "O Lord, our Lord." What is he saying there? What does that mean? Well, uh Lord, if you look at it, is all spelled in caps, right? L-O-R-D. We've talked about this just a few weeks ago, but I'll refresh you. When you see in the Old Testament L-O-R-D in caps, that's the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. It, was God, it is God's divine name. Moses says, well, who shall I say send me? Well, tell him I am sent you. And by the way, my name is Yahweh. I am God, but I'm also Yahweh. I'm, what he says is, I'm a personal God. I'm the God who's revealed myself to you. You can know me. This is an intimate God who's come down. And he says, so that's that's what we see here. And then he, David, so David says, "Oh Yahweh," right? When you read your Bibles, you can insert Yahweh, all right, when you see Lord like that. But um, he, then he adds, "Our Lord." The the Hebrew word there is Adonai. Adonai is a, a word that conveys. Um, being a master or a governor or a lord. And when it's referred to God, it's referring to the fact that that God is master or lord uh, um, over all creation and over all of his creatures. And then David uses the word majestic. Majestic is a royal term that's used in conjunction with a public display of a king's awesome power. And so by using the word majestic, David is drawing uh, our attention to God's kingship. God is a, has a kingship over the universe, over planet Earth, and over his creatures. And so, what does David mean then when he says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? David is, is joyfully describing that this is who he's come to worship and who we're all supposed to worship. It's, it's a personal God named Yahweh who is king and ruler over all the earth. He's created all things and our. our, our, our Attention is to be upon him. He is worthy of our praise and not just planet Earth, because he says you have set your glories above the heavens, both realms. Heaven and Earth is is the proper place are the proper place for worship. God's worship is deserved. Now, that's how it's supposed to be. But that's not how it is on Earth, is it? Is this how humanity lives its lives in honor and worship and glory to God? No. We see in verse two. It says, "Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger." And you're probably scratching your head. You're like, "All right, Mark, what is he getting at that?" There. Well, God does have foes, enemies. Avengers. These are three different words. They're, they're synonyms. This is poetry, after all. And so they say the same thing there are enemies of God. God has foes, people who are against him. Well, who would that be? Well, it be those who, though they see the stars, they don't see the God behind the stars. They don't bow a knee to him. Anybody who who looks at this universe and then says, uh, you know, in. in, in Many people will say, "Well, I think there is a God, but but their lives are really follow the refrain of Sinatra." I did it my way, right? Um, those would be people that David is just describing here. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps that's you. You believe in a God, but He's not a God you know personally. And what David is saying here is something paradoxical. It's quite amazing. He's saying, "Out of the mouths of infants and toddlers." <laughs> Uh, God's power will be seen to silence his critics. Jesus quoted this passage once after he was healing people and forgiving people of their sins. And the religious leaders came to him and they, they mocked and ridiculed him. And Jesus pointed and said, out of the mouths of babies. Um, and so he's quoting from this and saying that little children will get it right. But the people, often people get God all wrong. Sir Isaac Newton had a friend who was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. He preferred to believe that the universe just happened. Um, Isaac Newton happened one day. He had a a model of the the solar system um, in his home on display. And this friend came by and he saw this model of the solar system and how the sun was in the middle and how all the planets were able to revolve around in their perfect timing. And there was even moons there to to see. And and so this atheist friend, he admired the model and he said, it's it's intriguing. Who made it? Nobody, said Newton. It just happened. Point being, this universe Screams out, I've been created. Um, little kids get it. Little kids get it. My seminary professor um, pointed out this. He says, you know, the, there's something about kids. They seem to understand that the universe is made by God. Um, the, it, it's, it, little kids are, are able to look at the creation and understand that it had a creator, right? Uh, kids think in such a way where it's like uh, something was Something's here, so it had to be made. And if it was made, then it had a maker. Problem is, as we get a little bit older in life, uh, people will say, well, there really is no God. I, things just happened. They just, you know, we have what we have, but it just happened. David is saying here, he's showing us that, that God is an intimate creator God. Um, the universe displays his glory and we're properly to see that and worship him. The wonderful thing for us also to ponder here is is that God isn't just a God on high. He's the God who's come down. And we see that um, in verses three and four. See, it's not just enough to know of God. We need to know him intimately and personally. And David, David marvels at this in verses three and four. Look at it. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You know, as a shepherd boy, if you can imagine, David spent many a nights out in the wild, in the wilderness with the sheep, sitting on a hill, looking up all by himself at the beautiful starry sky, marveling at it, thinking, God, you made all that. Look how glorious it is. Why on earth would you even care for a speck like me? David is blown away by the gracious, loving care of God Almighty. This is not a feigned humility. This is true humility that that results from magnifying God's glory and marveling at God's attentive care. You know, I had a teacher in high school, a great man, really enjoyed his classes and his teaching. One day he walked me out into the hall. No, I wasn't in trouble. Uh, He walked me out into the hall and he said, he said, Mark, I know the problems you're going through at your home. I know it's difficult, but I believe you're going to get through it. I see a lot of qualities in you. And he named off a number of different things that he saw in me. And he says, Mark, I believe you're going to do well in this life. I want to encourage you with that. You know, those words stuck with me for all my life. What we see here is a a busy man. Uh, He taught a lot of classes, big classes. Um, he, he was very well respected and here he was taking time, uh, to, to care for me, to, to be mindful of me in a far greater way. David is rejoicing that this is how God is towards his people. And if you're a child of God, you've experienced this, right? I know you have, you see, we are his children after all. And he cares for us like a, like a father, a heavenly perfect father cares for his children. So we're right to worship God, to marvel at his infinite glory, to bow a knee to his kingly rule, to celebrate his care for us. So we're to worship God for who he is. But on a more practical side, you guys are practical people, right? I want a practical reason uh, to worship God. Well, we are to worship God for who we become. Here's a principle that I want you to remember and take with you until the day you die. All right. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. And did I make this up? No, there's actually at least two wonderful books written on this. Uh, one, one is written by Gregory Beal and it's titled We Become What We Worship. All right. Um, <laughs> and the other book, of course, is the Bible. In the Old Testament, God says, I have come near to you. I'm making you my people. Um, Know me. Delight in me. Find your goodness in me. Become like me. And God's people said, what? Eventually a number of them said, no, we, we would rather have the gods of the nations around us. We want to become like them. And God warned them. He said, OK, if you want to worship idols carved by hands and carved by wood and wood and stone, if, if you want to bow down to those things which have no eyes nor ears and cannot speak, guess what? You will become like them. You will not be able to see or hear or speak. You become what you worship. That's the core uh, claim of Gregory, Greg Beale's book is this. Here's what he says. He writes, What we revere, we will resemble, either for our ruin or for our restoration. As creatures of the living God, we are made to worship our creator. And in tragic reversal, we turn instead to worship empty things that we have created with our own hands. And so the question is not whether we will worship, but rather, what will we worship? Let me interject a note here. What I'm not saying is you can't desire to have a wonderful family or a successful career. What I am saying is we can't make those things ultimate. If, you desire, if your ultimate desire is a successful career, you will become like that. For instance, if greatness for you is to bow to a God of material success, you will become what you worship. You'll become cold and hard to pin down. Uh, you'll find that you won't give yourself away to others. Um, if you, if your greatness for you is to is to worship at the altar of physical beauty, you will become what you worship—shallow and skin deep, judging people by appearances. You become what you worship. Does that make sense? But if you worship the majestic creator, Lord, in whom all glory resides, you will become more like the Lord of glory, which you worship. You won't become him, but you become like him. We become what we worship. And so if this is true, the most important question you can ask right here, right now is what or who do you worship? Is there anything in your life that you elevate above God himself and you've given it that status and you're pursuing that? I don't think this isn't just for non-Christians. Christians, Christians, we can do this. This very ministry that I'm called to lead this church, it could become an idol for me. It could be something, if I'm not careful, to where I find my identity in it. I elevate it above God. God, you better bless this church because I'm working so hard here, right? Pray that that would not be uh, my desire. Pray that that God's glory would be my greatest desire. But think about your own lives. What, What is it? What is it that's captured your attention? What is it that you've elevated above God in his glory and then you are pursuing that? I warn you, you will become like that, whatever that is. But if you pursue God in his greatness, if you delight in him, if you find your joy in him, you begin to take on the greatness and the joy and delight of the creator who made you. That's the God of greatness. Now for the gift of greatness. God has gifted humanity with greatness. And you need to hear about this. What if you woke up one morning to a knock on your door and standing at your door is a very well-dressed, dignified man speaking uh, in a foreign accent. And he confirms your name and he says to you, guess what? You're the long lost heir of this kingdom. It's a prosperous kingdom across the sea, and there's a king who's been looking for you and he's called you to come to to his land and to serve as a prince or a princess in his kingdom and to bring about a loving rule and reign and and goodness to his land. Tell Tell me, would that not change you how you see yourself Would that would that? Would you not sense that there is uh, an undeserved dignity that's been placed upon you? Uh, Would not that calling get you excited and give you uh, a reason to head out of the door in the morning? Of course it would. What you would experience is, is a royal status and a princely role. And if lived right, you could bring blessing and glory to the king who called you over and gave you this uh, uh, great responsibility. You could bring blessing to the people around you and to the communities, and you could bring goodness to the land. Wouldn't your life be full of joy and excitement? The answer is, of course, yes, right? All right, so um, David is saying in a similar way that, that, that this is God's intention For humanity, that humanity, that mankind was given a royal status and a princely role. We see that in our text. In verse five, we see the gift of a royal status. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. David is taking us back to Genesis chapter one and chapter two, where we see that God made man in his image for for his glory, that this status was laid upon us, that that we were made a little lower than the heavenly beings. We're not angels. All right. But, uh, you know, we're not ordinary beasts of the field either. There's a dignity about humanity. I know in this culture we live in today, people want to equate human beings to being no better than than a fish, you know, or a firefly. Right. But there is a certain dignity and honor that God has given to humanity. We are we're the only creatures that are said to be made in his, in his image. And to be made in God's image means we've been imprinted with divine qualities that no other creature on earth has been imprinted with. There's some qualities of God that, that, that aren't communicated to us. You know, we're not infinite. We're not all-knowing. But God is good. God is uh, loving. God is creative. And these types of moral realities have been implanted on us. We were made in God's image with dignity. Um, We also see that we have a, a princely role. We see this as dominion over the earth. Verses six through eight. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the fireflies, uh, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You know, in the Garden of Eden, God, God uh, said to Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over everything. I, I created it all, but I'm giving it to you uh, to, to serve as royalty, to rule and to reign. Fill this earth. Have kids. Have lots of them. And your kids can have lots of kids. It's all okay. We're going to fill this earth. And as you image my glory, the beauty of who I am, my creativity, my power, my, my majesty, this world will be filled with um, people made in my image. Vice regents uh, who live for me and for my glory. Picture that. And as they, as they sought to honor God, they, some would have been... Mayors of cities, some would have been, some would have perhaps, uh, you know, invented all kinds of things, right? Some would become musicians and cr- culture would w- was to be created, be fruitful and multiply. Understand this, God made mankind not for mediocrity, but for greatness. There is, there is royalty in, in stamped upon us and there's a royal rule that has been given to us. We should try to picture that. Now, there's a profound problem. We're not those people. We're not. Something's gone horribly wrong. God said, I made this for you. It's a beautiful creation. I made you my image to reflect my glory. I've made these things. I've given them to you. And as a whole, mankind has trampled upon what God has given us. It takes us back to Genesis chapter three, where we see that Adam and Eve believed a lie. They said they they believed that greatness could be found apart from God. Just you don't need Him. You can do it on your own. Go go try it. And they believed the lie, and they found out that that was absolutely wrong. And in that instant, that beautiful communing relationship between creator and creature was severed. In an instant, that beautiful image of God in mankind was tainted and tarnished and soiled forever. You know, as Christians, sometimes we need to be reminded that every human being still retains that image of God. Even the staunchest atheist still loves his mother, right? Even the greatest criminal is able to exercise creativity in how they pull off the heist. We are made in God's image, right? We still reflect that, but we don't reflect it for his glory, and we don't do it all that well. We've been crowned with glory and honor. We've been given this royal calling, and humanity has fallen flat on his face, which is why we need to turn to Christ. The, the question in our minds today should be kind of a rewording of what what David was saying when he's saying, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him right now? We should be saying. What is it about broken humanity that you would still even care for us? What is it about us in our tarnished Brokenness that you should even desire to watch over us? What is it about human beings that you would even want to forgive and redeem? That's the question we should be asking. We should be asking is there a way that this can be fixed? I want that back. And the answer is yes. The answer is in Christ Jesus. You know, in the New Testament, there are four places, uh, at least four places in the Bible where this exact psalm is quoted. One of them is Hebrews chapter two, verses six through nine. The writer of the Hebrews actually says that man who was made lower than the angels. uh That was Jesus. He left heaven, glorious throne, took on human flesh, made a little bit lower than the angels. And God has given him the crowning glory of dominion. Why? Because he has stepped in our place where we failed. Christ has come down to be the perfect prince who lived in pure righteousness. Here's what it says. It says, it has been testified somewhere that what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. He quotes the, the writer quotes that and then he explains it. He says now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see Him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And check this out. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The picture there, as we see, is is God's own son left heaven. Became less than an angel. Please understand, that's quite a feat. You and I would not want to do that. I'm God. I'm not going to become less than an angel. Right? Christ did that. Why? Be- because God is a God who is mindful of his creatures. God is a God who cares for his creatures. Yes, even rebellious creatures like you and me. Who on our best day might even point to the stars and say, yeah, I guess there's a guy. He He offers us a way back to him. He does it not to make us happy, bear in mind. OK, he does it because he is a glorious God and the glorious God does not give up on his glorious creation. And in fact, he allowed his creation to fall to where it is so that his glory would be even greater seen in our eyes. And so the invitation is for us to to, to ponder Christ and what he's done for us, that he became less than the angels, that, that he tasted death so that you don't have to. And please understand this. The penalty for rebellion in God's kingdom is being cut off from the kingdom and his death. But God, through his son, has tasted death for you. That's the offer of the gospel. That's what that's what God that's that's what the gospel is. The gospel isn't God wants you happy so he can be happy. Uh, the gospel is God became in, incredibly broken and sad so that we could experience his greatness. God, God took upon him the bitterness of death so that we can experience life so that we can be brought back into that relationship with God so that we can not just call him God, but we can call him Yahweh, Lord. So we can look at him and say He is majestic. And that, that we, he is our king and we will live for him. This is the calling upon us. And, and you see, you see why this is a song to be sung, right? It's, it's a song for God's people. Because we need reminding that this is, this is who God is. He's not like a feeble God who's, who, who's made out of wood, who, who, who can't even speak or hear. He is the Lord Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And he cares about human beings. And he offers us a way back to him. It's his own son, Jesus Christ. So where does this leave us this morning? Hopefully marveling in astonishment at the majestic goodness and greatness of God. Hopefully saying afresh and anew, why on earth are you even concerned with me? And then looking to Christ and going, ah. I know how much you're concerned for me. Your concern cost you the death of your own son. That's how much you're concerned for me. And it should cause us to reject any other crown that this world offers us. Yes, offer us a nice job, but it's not my crown. Offer me a caring family that I love, yes, but it's not my crown. Offer me a, a, a successful, uh, you know, uh, sc- schooling. Great, but it's not my crown. Ultimately, the the crown that God gives us is is the crowning glory of his greatness. And, uh, And as kings and queens or princes and princesses, we are to walk with that reality that we have been given a dignity that comes from God and a calling to rule and to reign. Christ restores that for us. As we put Christ on the throne, we are being restored in our dignity We've been given back that crown. Uh, we've been restored in our calling. We can rule over this earth to the best of our ability until Christ returns. Let we do this for his glory. As we leave here this morning, maybe marvel at wonder and wonder at God Almighty. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for this amazing psalm. It truly is your words, though they come through David. Jesus, we praise you that you took on this role for us. You subjected yourself. You came and you were the one who lowered yourself, that we might be brought back to God. We praise you for this work. We ask that you would help enliven our souls, that we would rejoice in this, that we would be in awe of your splendor and glory, and that we would find our greatness um, in you and your calling upon us. We pray. Amen.